1: The Pacific's important for a number of reasons. Firstly, they're fellow human beings. There's something like 15 million Pacific Islanders living as close as four kilometres from Australia. And so we should care about their future and we should care about how we support their advancement both economically but socially.
0: Hello, I'm Sarah Martin, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. This is Australian Politics, and I'm filling in for our Queen, Catherine Murphy, while she takes a hiatus for her quarterly essay and for some well-earned leave. Today, I'm speaking with Pat Conroy, the Minister for Defence Industry and Minister for International Development and the Pacific. We talked about a number of issues important in our region. We discussed climate change, security, the situation with the election in the Solomon Islands, and what the increasing competition between Australia and China means for them and for other countries in the region. Pat Conroy, thanks for joining the show.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I'm very excited.
0: So, obviously, you took over the portfolio at a particularly fraught time. The Pacific came up quite prominently in the election campaign um, when it was revealed that the Solomon Islands was considering a security pact with China. We've obviously seen those tensions between the US and China play out quite openly in the Indo-Pacific since you've been elected. You've been in the job three months. Can you give us a bit of an overview as to what you, how you assess the security situation in the region? Just an easy one to kick <laughs>
1: off. With. I think it can be described in one word: challenging. Mm. The the region I describe it as facing three C's, climate change, COVID, and competition. And that's that's the new paradigm that we're in. And it's one where I'm really enthusiastic about engaging in this role because I can't think of a more critical time where the future of Australia has been entwined with the future of the Pacific Island r- region.
0: Mm. Why is that? Why is it so critical at this point?
1: Well, I think for a couple of reasons. We're both on the front line of climate change. Uh, Australia is being impacted by climate change right now, as is the Pacific Island region. And when you talk to people there, this is not a hypothetical issue. It's occurring right now. They are losing islands right now. Their way of life is being threatened right now. And that, that shared interest in fighting climate change is something that's so timely. And obviously, we're in an era of unparalleled strategic competition. We have Mm. two global powers that are both re-engaging in this region, well, one re-engaging, the other engaging, uh, and Australia's Entire security posture since 1945 has been premised on Australia being the security partner of choice for the Pacific region, mm. and that is now being challenged. And mm. so, uh, it's a period where it, it, it's an immense privilege to be the minister for the Pacific.
0: Mm. I mean, it's it's an incredibly um, important job given the, that challenging environment that you outline. Um, you're just back from Solomon Islands, and met with Prime Minister Sogavara in Hainiara. Can you tell us about that trip and your meeting with the Prime Minister?
1: It was a a fabulously interesting trip from a number of reasons. One of the reasons I was uh, over there was for the 80th Commemorations of the Guadalcanal campaign, which was the turning point uh, of the Pacific campaign, which obviously was central to World War II. and the sort of the echoes of history were so powerful. I, I crossed um, a creek called Alligator Creek, where, if, any, if anyone's ever seen the HBO series *The Pacific*, is where the Marines landed and defended. I was at a number of ceremonies with Caroline Kennedy, the U.S. Ambassador, mm-hmm. and Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman, and to talk of hear them talk about their families experiences, and Caroline Kennedy met the son and daughter-in-law of one of the two Solomon Islands Coast Watchers who saved her father after PT-109. So the history was obviously incredibly important, and then obviously the the opportunity to have those bilateral meetings with Prime Minister Sogavari and three of his ministers, and, and to look at projects that Australia is working on now with the Solomon Islands government. So I opened um, an expansion of the Australian Pacific Training Coalition where we're training meat workers and hospitality workers right now to, to come to Australia. And I met a couple of returned workers in Joseph and Jared who had been in Australia for three years without seeing their family and their remittances kept their families afloat during COVID. The skills they've learned meant that they're now opening businesses in the Solomon Islands that will further enhance their society. And then I, I opened a new computer laboratory at Honiara Senior High School that had been burned down during the, the riots late last year and chatting with students, one of them, a young lady called Joanna, who's in Year 12, who wants to be a lawyer. And that's the future of Solomon Islands. And that was a real practical manifestation of Australia's aid is improving the lives of people in a region where one-third of Pacific Islanders live on US $1.90 a day, which is the UN definition of absolute poverty. So it, it was a really interesting trip where I saw how Australia is really partnering with the Solomon Islands to improve their fortunes.
0: Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of what you've outlined is that very important sort of soft diplomacy, um, but there's a lot of pointy stuff mm. going on at the same time as well. So I'm curious to know in terms of the security pact signed with China... Did you seek some clarification from the Prime Minister about the details of that? Has, Australia, has the Australian government seen the pact yet? Uh,
1: the final, the final pact has still not been published, to, to my understanding. But importantly, both Prime Minister Solgavari and a number of his ministers reassured me that Australia is the security partner of choice for the Solomon Islands, and that they would come to Australia first if there's any gaps to be filled. and And we're working with them right now. We're we're constructing. Um, border outposts in their western and eastern borders right now that are very important. We're obviously partnering with the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. We've got um, Pacific patrol boats that are doing really important work in the region right now. So we are the security partner of choice for the Solomon Islands, and I, I welcome those assurances from Prime Minister Sogavari, assurances he's given Prime Minister Albanese when we met with him at the Pacific Islands Forum and with Foreign Minister Wong.
0: The Prime Minister has also said that if Australia doesn't fill that gap, then it is prepared to turn to China to do so. I just want to scrutinise that a little bit more and ask, at what point do we say that filling that gap may be unacceptable to us? I mean, clearly it's not unconditional. For example, your visit coincides with controversy over delaying the election. What if that election result led to public unrest and Australia was asked to fill that gap and we had concerns about the election outcome? Is that not an example of where Sogavari might turn to China to fill a security gap is that a risk that we are facing?
1: Oh, I don't think it's productive or, quite frankly, appropriate for a minister in my position to engage in hypotheticals about what may happen if another hypothetical eventuates. So mm. I, I, in terms of the bill that's before the Solomon Islands Parliament, it's up to the Solomon Islands Parliament, which has been democratically elected, and the people of Solomon Islands to decide whether that's the way they want to go. And it's a long way to go. The bill can't even be debated for another three weeks under their laws, mm. and we'll just see what process eventuates there. But I think it's really important to sort of set the context for all this. And the context is Australia is the largest development partner, in the Solomon Islands. It's our third largest development program. We've got 4,000 Solomon Island workers right now working in Australia under the Pacific Labor schemes. Uh, we're working really closely together on a range of other programs, including through um, our Australian Federal Police and the ADF. And so our partnership with the Solomon Islands is incredibly deep and it's to the benefit of both nations. Mm. And it's my job to work on how we can elevate that as part of our broader re-engagement with the Pacific.
0: Mm. Does Australia not have concerns, though? I mean, I know you say it's a matter for the, for the Parliament to decide, but, you know, there is criticism. This is fundamentally anti-democratic and, um, you know, the election should happen when the election is, is constituted to happen. Does Australia not have any concerns? About that delay.
1: Well, I, I, I note Prime Minister Sogavari's assurances, and in fact, mind thing is, it's contained in the bill that they would return to their regular four yearly election cycles. And I think it's really important to to have regular democratic cycles. But again, we have to be very careful about interfering in the internal processes of other nations, particularly nations that are debating things through a democratically elected parliament. Mm. And, and it's important to respect those processes.
0: But isn't it also important for Australia to make sure it, it sort of strongly supports democratic institutions in these countries where democracy can be a bit shaky? Mm. You know, isn't it, isn't it important for Australia to be a strong voice on that?
1: Oh, we need to stand up for our values and, and strong and healthy democracy is a part of that value. Uh, values, obviously. I would note, for example, that the Solomon Islands opposition leader has urged Solomon Islanders who have concerns about this process to be part of the parliamentary process to uh, put in submissions. So there's a parliamentary process that is actually working at the moment, and we should be incredibly respectful of that. I I think these are debates where we have to be very careful about um, how we approach them.
0: All right. So just sort of bigger picture, obviously, you know, Solomon Islands is, is just one country in the Pacific that's obviously in Australia's sights at the moment. Um, can I just ask, what is Australia's assessment of what China's long-term plan is for the region? And I guess sort of a bigger question, because I don't know if, if people sort of get this, but why does Australia care so much? Why is it so important?
1: Well, the, the Pacific's important for a number of reasons. F- firstly, they're fellow human beings. There's something like 15 million Pacific Islanders living as close as four kilometres from Australia. The closest mm-hmm. border is four kilometres from Australia. So these are the closest non-Australian human beings to us. And so we should care about their future and we should care about how we support their advancement both economically but socially. As I said, a third of them live on US $1.90 a day. There are 3 million Papua New Guineans who live in districts that don't have a single doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, We see regular outbreaks of uh, drug-resistant Tuberculosis, um, polio. These are things where we have an obligation as fellow human beings to help this region. Secondly, obviously, in some parts of uh, this region, we have an obligation as as former colonisers. Like, th- th- it's really important to recognise that we owe. Some of this region a debt. Uh, while Timor-Leste is not part of the Pacific, we often group Timor-Leste in with the Pacific uh, because of development needs, geographic proximity. We owe a debt of gratitude to Timor-Leste for the tens of thousands of Timor-Leste uh, people who died during World War II as a result of helping Australian uh, servicemen and women. So we've got a sort of a moral obligation to help in the Pacific. And, and third, as I said before, our entire defence of Australia. Has been secured, uh, has been approached on the basis that um, we are the partner of choice for security in the Pacific region. And so we should care about the Pacific for a whole number of reasons. Mm. And that's uh, why we have a minister for the Pacific. That's why we've had eight visits from Australian ministers and prime ministers in less than three months since we've been re elected. That's why Prime Minister Albanese has said publicly one of my jobs is to visit every single Pacific Island nation and territory in the next 12 months. He set me a, an ambitious goal that I'm really passionate about meeting. So that's why we should care about it. Other countries are interested in the Pacific that's natural. It's not just China. The United States is re-engaging. United Kingdom, France, India it has signalled an intent there as well. Japan has obviously a strong history there that they're working on. So this is an area of great sort of geostrategic competition. We've been there for a very long time. We've got close cultural and sporting links and affinities, and we should really be working on that.
0: Mm. Does Australia have any concern with the concept of um, Pacific Island nations being friend to all, enemy to none?
1: Oh, well, I understand that that's the professed view of many Pacific Island nations. And uh, what I can say is that One of my goals is that Australia is the partner of choice, whether it's on development needs or security needs within the Pacific. Uh, And, in fact, the Pacific Islands Forum, the central sort of regional architecture for the Pacific, has been very clear in its statements that have been supported by all Pacific Island nations that the security needs of the Pacific should be met by the Pacific family, and we're part of the Pacific family, as is New Zealand. So that's my focus, is the Pacific security needs should be met within the Pacific.
0: Mm. So, I mean, it's also sort of become totemic of this sort of grand tussle between authoritarianism and democracy, and I think obviously that's why it has captured so much attention. What what can Australia do to sort of counter the push by China to gain more influence in the Pacific? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not so much focused. I think it will be a gross simplification to just contextualise the Pacific or even Australia's engagement in the Pacific as a binary choice of going to countries and saying, you must choose between Australia and another country. Uh, I think that what I'm focused on is what I can control, which is deepening Australia's engagement with the Pacific. The two things I say when I meet leaders and ministers and community members for the first time is uh, the new Australian government will provide more energy So you'll see more ministers, particularly me, but not just me, engaging with you um, uh, much more regularly. And secondly, we'll listen. We'll listen to your priorities and act on those priorities. And climate change is probably the most uh, significant example of that. Uh, So what I'm focused on is that and what our election policy did and what we're continuing to do in government is use every lever of statecraft to deepen Australia's relationship with the Pacific, whether it's uh, obviously overseas development assistance, foreign aid, where we're increasing it by 525 million, but as importantly, if not more importantly, turbocharging the Pacific labour schemes that do multiple things, they they fill skill shortages in Australia that we desperately need filled. Secondly, those workers develop skills that then contribute to their home economy, and that benefits those countries. And thirdly, it sustains families and villages and communities. As I said, a third of Pacific Islanders live on US $1.90 a day or just under $700 a year. The average Pacific worker sends back $6, US dollars a year. So, almost 10 times what a third of Pacific Islanders are living on. This is about lifting Pacific Islanders out of poverty. There's also our our sporting links that are really important. There's um, our Pacific engagement visa, where for the first time in the history of this country, we will assign 3,000 permanent migration spots to a specific region of the globe to build a diaspora that we, we want to build and connect with. So we're using every lever of statecraft. Our cooperation through the Australian Defence Force is another great example. We're using all that to promote Australia as a partner of choice by acting on the needs of Pacific Islanders. And it's through that that we can be that partner of choice. Um, I don't say it flippantly, but there'll never be a Papua New Guinea rugby league team in the Chinese rugby league competition. I'm yet to see many Pacific Island workers getting employment in China, for example. So there are areas where we can work to a greater extent there. And it's when we invest in the region as well. So when we fund development projects, particularly infrastructure, there won't be strings attached, they'll be transparent, we'll be acting on the needs of the actual country we're dealing with, it'll be high quality, and we'll engage as much as possible on local content. And and that gives a double dividend. It's not just Building the piece of infrastructure as using local workers to build that project. And they're things that other countries don't do particularly well. Um, And so they're areas where we can deepen our relationship.
0: Mm. There was a lot of criticism of the Morrison government when the security pact was signed between Solomon Islands and China. Is the Australian government concerned that other security pacts are to come? Do we see that as inevitable and is there anything we can do about that?
1: Well, again, I have to be careful about speculating about the motivations of other countries. It's Mm. not particularly productive. But China has attempted to secure a regional security pact and um, the response from the region particularly was again, through the Pacific Islands Forum, that things should be done on a regional approach. But look, I think it's natural for countries within the Pacific to be focused on how they can satisfy their security needs. So all I can focus on is how does Australia be that partner?
0: Mm. But does that mean that other pacts are inevitable, do you think?
1: Oh, I'm not that would involve me speculating on the motivations of a number of other countries. Well, not, not
0: I mean, not based on speculation. I mean, presumably you would have information as the minister that, mm. you know, whether other security deals were imminent or likely or
1: oh look i think people can see from open source information that other countries are interested in engaging on the security needs of the pacific we're focused on what we can control and really ramping that up. So one of our other election commitments was doubling the funding for maritime, aerial maritime surveillance to help combat illegal fishing. This is a thing that robs over $150 million US from revenues for Pacific countries. The tuna fishing stock is probably the most critical resource to many Pacific nations. And so we're supporting a crackdown on illegal fishing. And it's something that Australia can offer that other countries can't because often they're the source of the illegal fishing. Mm.
0: I guess the other thing that Australia can offer is you know a, a robust defence of really important uh, democratic institutions, th- things like a free press. Hmm. We know that China has moved into that space in the Pacific. Um, we know that Solomon Islands is looking to take over the national broadcaster and there's been a lot of concern in that country about that. Australia used to have, the Australia Channel used to have sh- a sh- shortwave uh, radio transmission. Are those sorts of things important for Australia to consider restarting as part of those sort of tools of, of, of statecraft mm. that you're talking about?
1: Well, they absolutely are. And, and as an example of that, we, we announced during the election period a $32 million investment in Indo-Pacific broadcasting strategy, and that does two things. One, it's about giving greater resources to the ABC to broadcast into the region and, and fill a need that is out there. But as importantly, it's to increase training and mentorship for Pacific Island journalists because that's incredibly important that they they have the skills and resources to be a free and independent media, and we're really committed to that. We're also looking at, obviously, what's happening in other methods of communication. But the $32 million is a really important way of doing that. But there's also little things. So, for example, in press conferences I do in the Pacific, and I know Foreign Minister Wong did this a lot, and so did Prime Minister Albanese, we will equally call on local journalists as much as Australian journalists. And I know some Australian journalists get frustrated by that, but it's really important that we give um, access and answer the questions of Pacific Island journalists mm. because we need to build that free and independent media.
0: Mm. But do you have concern that we're seeing that free and independent media across the Pacific, uh, seeing that value be eroded?
1: Oh, look, I think th- there's been a lot of reporting about the lack of resources for some media organisations there and speculation about where some parts of media are getting trained. And that's partly because a void was created when the last government abandon the pacific particularly through uh, cuts to the abc and look i'm not going to be in a blame game but we, we do have to recognize that a void was filled because the last the government created mm. that void
0: mm. but shouldn't those countries and those countries leaders also be in line for for some criticism for allowing that situation to develop
1: ah oh, look I, again this is one where i, I, I aren't going to go into that sort of territory. I just think we can focus on where we can add value to Pacific media, and that's through mm. training and mentorship and supporting the ABC to broadcast mm. into the region.
0: Is it not problematic that the government doesn't seem prepared to criticise any of our Pacific Island neighbours for any, for these sorts of things? Like, I'll, I'll ask you another one. Obviously, Kiribati has just attempted to, uh, you know, has interfered with the judiciary, um, has attempted to deport David Lambourne, are we critical of that erosion of this separation of state and the judiciary?
1: Oh, look, my understanding is that that process is still going through a number of steps, and again i I sense your frustration, but <laughs> and that's understandable, but uh, we have to be in a way where we can raise our concerns with other countries Mm. and not use megaphone diplomacy. Mm. Like it doesn't actually benefit anyone Mm. for us to to do that. We will always engage and promote Australian values and Mm. that includes um, uh, values around democracy and that's really important. Uh, But we have to do it in a calm, measured way Mm. where we respect other nations and we work with uh, democratically elected governments to pursue their needs and priorities. And I think sometimes the last government was more interested in bullying Pacific nations and actually mm. working with them.
0: Mm. And so are we doing that quietly? <laughs> are we expressing quiet concerns about well, some it, of these it, human it, rights and it, it, press freedom it, 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 issues?
1: Um, th- th- this podcast has got a, a fabulous listenership. So if we're expressing things quietly, I would hardly come on here and say that. There's so. no
0: one in this room. Yes. Just, just, just you Just you and me, Sarah. You and me Minister. Um, okay, so... Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Climate change obviously um, has been a huge concern of Pacific Island nations for a very long time. And since the change of government, there's obviously been Pacific Island leaders have welcomed the the, the government sh- shift and focus on climate action. Um, but we also have leaders like Frank Bainimarama urging the government to go further to ensure that global warming is limited to one point five degrees. Why aren't we heeding that call?
1: Well, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, there was a genuine palpable sense of relief on the election of the new government when we engaged in the Pacific. You could feel it at the Pacific Islands Forum and in every forum where I talked about our renewed commitment to taking action on climate change. Uh, and people understood and respected our policies, and we kept emphasising that the 43% A is a floor, not a ceiling. I'm confident Australian business can do more once we've got the architecture in place. And there's a pathway to net zero emissions by 2050. And it's not a policy in isolation. It's partnered with uh, achieving 82% renewable energy by 2050, our Pacific climate infrastructure facility. They're all working together um, on this area. Another way where we're actually being really positive about climate, instead of blocking Climate action, which is what the last government did most infamously at the 2019 Tuvalu Pacific Islands Forum, we're amplifying the voice of the Pacific in multilateral forums. For example, the foreign minister of Tuvalu has been raising an issue on behalf of the PIF around when islands disappear under current UN maritime laws, you lose the economic zone around it. You lose the exclusive economic zone that gives you the fishing rights, the resource rights. So in every international forum where I've been, where there's been opportunity, and the last one was at the um, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, when this has been raised, I've been supporting the efforts of um, our Pacific brothers and sisters to get these laws changed so that the climate change that is inevitable doesn't mean that these countries, and Australia included, loses the exclusive economic zone. That's just one example of where we're being a partner. Uh, on the need for more climate action. Look, we, our policy is what our policy is. Uh, it's miles straight ahead of the last government and we'll just keep working on delivering that policy and I understand why people want us to do more.
0: We'd love to talk more about um, the Pacific and your new role. It's an incredibly fascinating area that you have as your portfolio but unfortunately you've got to go and catch a plane I think so we'll have to <laughs> wrap it up there but thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you Sarah, it's a real pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back with you next week. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?